Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From Ritual Holiness to Human Compassion, Jesus and the Politics of Purity. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, August 30th, 2009. At my daughter's soccer lunch, Hannah gently reminded her daughter to remove the cheese from her Subway sandwich. It's still not kosher, she laughed, but at least it's a little bitter. I admired Hannah's care to follow her Jewish dietary laws to keep kosher by eating only what is fit or clean, from the Hebrew word kasher. Following such purity laws as a way to express your relationship with God might sound trivial, but in Mark's Gospel for this week, we see how ritual purity and holiness codes form the context of the mission and message of Jesus. The dietary restrictions that Hannah observed comprise only a small part of a comprehensive and complex holiness code that regulated personal and community life for the Jewish people 3,500 years ago. By one count, there are 613 mitzvot, or commandments, in the five books of Moses. The Levitical purity laws regulated nearly every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relationships, hygiene, marriage, behavior, agricultural, and certainly ethnicity, for Gentiles were automatically considered ritually impure. In particular, the purity laws of Leviticus chapters 11 to 26 specify in minute detail clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections and contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions, with, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, agricultural guidelines about planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships, keeping the Sabbath, forsaking idols, and even tattoos. Why so many rules? Some of these purity laws encoded simple common sense or moral ideals that we still follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated its people from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, the purity laws and holiness code ritualized an exhortation from Yahweh in Leviticus 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in Psalm 15, verse 1, when the psalmist for this week asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? The proper response is that only people who are ritually clean may approach a holy God. 
And at the center of this purity system, both literally and symbolically, stood the temple, where one performed rites of purification. Scholars debate how much or how little ordinary first Jews maintained ritual purity. But the Pharisees, about whom we read so much in the Gospels, certainly did. Throughout the Gospels, they criticized Jesus because of his flagrant disregard for ritual purity. Jesus the Jew touched a leper. His disciples didn't fast. He ignored Sabbath laws. Each touched a woman with a discharge and handled a corpse. He healed two Gentiles. And in the Gospel story for this week, perhaps the most important of all purity texts, Mark recounts a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees about food purity. Why, the Pharisees complained, did Jesus' disciples eat with unclean hands? Mark includes two parenthetical explanations to his Gentile readers who might otherwise have been clueless. In Mark 7, chapter 7, 3, and 4, we read, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And then, in an aside that we might find trivial, but as readers would have found shocking, Mark writes in Mark 7.19, Jesus thus declared all foods clean. Nor should we miss the central accusation in this clash. The Pharisees considered Jesus and his followers as ritually unclean sinners who flaunted God's clear laws. And in a sense, they were right. Given our human propensity for justifying ourselves and for scapegoating others, the purity laws lent themselves to a spiritual stratification or hierarchy between the ritually clean, who consider themselves to be close to God, and the ritually unclean, who were shunned as impure sinners who were far from God. Instead of expressing the holiness of God, ritual purity became a means of excluding people considered dirty, polluted, or contaminated. In word and in deed, Jesus ignored, disregarded, and actively demolished these distinctions of ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. In Marcus Borg's view, Jesus turned this purity system with its sharp social boundaries on its head. And in its place, he substituted a radically alternate social vision. The new community that Jesus announced would be characterized by interior compassion for everyone, not external compliance to a purity code by egalitarian inclusivity rather than by hierarchical exclusivity, and by inward transformation rather than by outward ritual. 
in place of be holy, for I am holy, Leviticus 19.2, according to Borg, Jesus deliberately substituted the call, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, Luke 6.36. No outcasts, writes Gary Wills, were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people now who could possibly be outside his encompassing love? I found it humbling to ask, what outcasts do I sanctimoniously spurn as impure, unclean, dirty, contaminated, and in my mind far from God? Maybe the mentally ill? People who have married three or four times? Wealthy executives? Welfare recipients? People who hold conservative political opinions? or maybe people with AIDS? How have I distorted the self-sacrificing, egalitarian love of God into self-serving, exclusionary elitism? What boundaries do I wrongly build, or might I bravely shatter? I pray to experience what Borg calls a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos in politics of compassion. And now for further reflection. For meditation, consider when God hates all the same people you hate, you can be sure that you've created him in your own image. Who are you tempted to exclude as impure and unclean? How do we embrace both holiness and compassion instead of choosing one or the other? What does the hierarchy or stratification of impurity look like in your own community? And finally, you might watch the film An Uncommon Kindness about the Flemish priest Damien de Voister who ministered to the abandoned lepers on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. For books this week, I review a title called Reason, Faith, and Revolution, Reflections on the God Debate. The author is Terry Eagleton, New Haven, Yale, 2009, 185 pages. The atheists Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens has suffered their share of critical reviews, but perhaps none have been as categorical or vociferous as this one from their fellow Brit, Terry Eagleton. By some accounts, Terry Eagleton is the most influential literary critic in Britain, and by all accounts, he's an unreformed intellectual bad boy and not only for his Marxist socialism. In the present volume, he combines his rapier wit 
encyclopedic knowledge and spirited prose to dismiss what he calls the Ditchkins as pitiful pikers whose ramblings deserve our disdain. True, the Ditchkins make some good points, but their sloppy thinking, strident language, and dogmatic condescension are warning signs of an atheism bought on the cheap. Their stock-in-trade includes vulgar caricatures of religion, an abysmally crude and infantile version of what theology has traditionally maintained, ignorance, cultural supremacism, and what Eagleton calls an eminently suburban love affair with the Enlightenment myth of liberal progress, including the refusal to acknowledge that religion has done any good anywhere or that science has done any harm. They promote an either-or mentality that ignores ambiguity. They're defenders of the political status quo and hardly the revolutionaries they purport to be. Terry Eagleton was raised in an Irish Roman Catholic in working-class England, and although he has been ambiguous about his own personal faith, he says that one reason he wrote this polemic was to defend the faith of his forebears as something worthy of a defense. Christendom has betrayed the truly revolutionary nature of original Christianity, he says, and so, in addition to attacking the secular left, he undertakes the Kierkegaardian task of distinguishing between the genuine article and its many counterfeits. The revolutionary gospel does not conform to the geopolitical and economic ways of the world, and in the end, he says, is rather absurdly, outrageously more hopeful than liberal rationalism in its myth of progress. Any preaching of the gospel, writes Eagleton, which fails to constitute a scandal and affront to the political state is, in my view, effectively worthless. Along the way, Eagleton has harsh words for capitalism, which he considers inherently atheistic, as did Karl Barth, by the way, postmodernism, Oxford high table, globalization, the quarters of power in Washington and London, and Western civilization's failure to understand and engage Islam in a meaningful way. If you enjoy unapologetic iconoclasm of the highest order, Eagleton makes for a good read. In addition to his 40 books, he's scheduled to deliver a single Gifford lecture in March 2010. Terry Eagleton, Reason, Faith, and Revolution. And for film this week, I review Food, Inc. from 2009. Robert Kenner's documentary food film demonstrates once again the public's hunger for a food ethic. As in his pre previous films like Supersize Me and King Corn, the recipe for success is tried and, unfortunately, all too true. A few multinational conglomerates with the complicity of our federal regulatory agencies like the FDA and the USDA control a disproportionate amount of our food supply from farm to fork, all to the detriment of public health, local farmers, international economies, 
exploited workers, the environment, and respect for animals. The sole corporate concern is a fat profit. And if you're a farmer, you better think twice about challenging Monsanto. If you have children, consider that because of their so-called normal diet, they have a one in three chance of, cha of developing diabetes. One in two if you're a minority. Much of this film is narrated by the understated Michael Pollan, author of The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food, and also by Eric Schlosser of Fast Food Nation. Although the film includes some very brave and creative alternatives, it's been a long time since I left the movie theater feeling so angry and so helpless to do much about the problem. A critic in the New York Times described Food, Inc. as, quote, one of the scariest films of the year. Food, Inc., 2009. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The title is called Love Three. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first interest in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. George Herbert, Love 3 Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 30th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.